0: Welcome to this podcast of Sunday nights on ABC Local Radio. I hope you enjoyed the program. Good to be with you. Well, this week we're in the midst of the high festive season of Australia's real religion which is sport. Of course, Paralympians are just on their way back. It's not so long since the Olympics, AFL's going off. But how should our sporting heroes play the game? And do they always fight fair? That's our topic in this hour, and we're going to be looking at it in depth with an illustrious panel. With a swag of Essendon players suspended this season for taking banned drugs a few years ago, doping has cast a shadow over the AFL this year. And in the Rio Olympics, it was a hot topic too. Our gold medalist, Mac Horton, provoked a diplomatic incident by calling Chinese competitor Son Yang a drug cheat to his face. And Russian athletes were banned from competing for a history of taking banned drugs. Here's what Mac had to say.
1: I was just standing behind the blocks and he splashed me to say hi and I kind of ignored him because I don't have time for or respect for people who are drug cheats, so I kind of ignored him, he just kept splashing me, um, because he didn't like it very much, and that was about it, really. Uh, Yeah, definitely a win for a good guy, so I don't know if it's a rivalry between me and him, just me and athletes who have tested positive, I guess.
0: Mac Horton, uh, that really got quite a lot of talk right around the world, and he called it out. Well, we've just had the Olympics and Paralympics and now there's footy fever with teams that will fight it out in the grand finals decided this weekend. In the NRL next Sunday, Cronulla will do battle with the Melbourne Storm at ANZ Stadium in Sydney. And in the AFL, the Sydney Swans meet the Western Bulldogs at the MCG on Saturday. And sport is so central to Australians and not only because big money's involved, but because sport can tell us something about who we are, what we're like what we aspire to, a healthy mind and a healthy body body politic, as it were. So at its best, sport involves, of course, self-discipline. It's about health, about competition, about increasing excellence. And those old Olympic Games in ancient times started out embedded in a theory of ethics with the Games aspiring to ethical excellence as well as physical. And in preparing for this, I discovered that Plato, the philosopher, once said, you can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. And he also, in summary, basically said, as with the games, so with society or the city. They reflect who we are. So tonight, we're looking at why we play, sport, values and drugs. And we're entering into the big league with a stellar panel. Joining us on the phone uh, from her home on the Gold Coast is Melanie Wright, formerly Melanie Schlanger, Melanie is an Australian swimming star, she won gold and two silver medals as a member of the relay teams at the London Olympics in 2012, and she's now studying medicine at Bond University on the Gold Coast. Melanie, welcome to the program. Thank you, thanks
2: for having me.
0: And in studio, Zali Stegel, OAM. Now Zali is one of our most successful international skiers, former Olympian, the first Australian to win a medal at the Winter Olympics winning a bronze, bronze medal in the slalom at Nagano in Japan in 98. She represented Australia four times at the Winter Olympics and in 99 won a gold medal at the World Ski Championships held at Vale in the USA. And in 2008, she was admitted to the bar and she's now a barrister specialising in commercial, family and sports law. She's also a director of the Australian Institute of Winter Sports. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: In our Brisbane studios, Dr Thomas Murray. Now, from the USA, Thomas Murray is President Emeritus of the Hastings Centre, which is a well-known ethics centre near New York, well, in New York State. And he chaired the Ethical Issues Review Panel for WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. He's in Australia on a speaking tour taking part in the ACU, the Australian Catholic University Luminary series of lectures, and he's also engaged with ACU in Brisbane. Dr. Thomas Murray, welcome to the program. Good evening, Noel. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. And also in studio, Dr Diana Robinson. Now, Diana is a very highly regarded sports and exercise physician with, with decades of experience. Now based at Sydney Sports Med Specialists, and in 2013 she was appointed by the Federal Minister for Health Sport to the Anti-Doping Rules Violation Panel, the same one Zali works on, I believe, too. She, uh, is, she has also been the Australian team doctor for the Commonwealth Games and medical director of triathlon at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games, she was also medical director at triathlon Australia 1993 to 2002, and so on and so forth. We've got a really fabulous panel. Welcome to the program, Diana. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Let's begin, Melanie. Do you mind if we if we if we throw to you? Um, you heard that replay of what Mac Horton had to say. Uh, was was he doing the right thing in your view to speak out like that at the Rio Olympics?
2: Yeah, look, I think so. I think um, it's actually a really hard thing for an athlete to do. I think when you're at the Olympics, your focus is so much on putting together your performance and and focusing on the things that you can control, and and your competitors are not something you can control. And so, for him to be able to step outside of that and make a stand against um, drugs in sport in general in that way is incredibly courageous. So. Um, I think a lot of athletes don't do it because of their impact on their own performance so to see that was really great.
0: Uh, can you tell us your basic position on drugs in sport?
2: Yeah look I'm adamantly against it um, you know I've I've competed against many many clean athletes but I've also competed against um, athletes who have been banned for two years for drugs and then they come back and, and they're free to to take medals with a lot of other athletes and I think it's just it's, it's really a problem, you know, in um, in sport in general and um, something that I think is is pretty much getting worse um, as the years mm. go on and hopefully something that we can address and change. Uh,
0: do you think there is enough awareness of the problem now in the general public that, that, that enough is being done about it?
2: Yeah, I think that there's been a lot more awareness uh, in the recent past and, and it is becoming an issue um, that people are interested in um, on the downside of that, I think people see how tough it is to, to combat, and I think it does sort of uh, lead towards the public losing a bit of interest in, and trust in, in sport in general. And, and um, you know, it could be, I guess when they watch, uh, they can't help but feel, is this person who's winning um, clean or not? And, uh, and I think that does tarnish sport um, as a whole, and I think that's probably a big problem, but Certainly the, the profile of drugs and sport has been listed in the last couple of years and people are more aware of it and, and hopefully that will bring um, a change.
0: Zali Stegel, how do you respond to that? I mean, is that ringing bells with you? You were, you were doing the hard yards representing the nation.
3: Uh, certainly, and I th- but, but there is also the different levels of whether you're suspecting, I guess, drugs uh, during competition or whether it's in the training months and out of competition where people, um, you, there's that suspicion of getting an unfair advantage in their preparation. Um, it is really tough uh, when, as an athlete, I think, when uh, you feel like it's not an even playing field, uh, But at at the same time, I think uh, in terms of your question of um, has a profile uh, been raised, I think it goes in in waves. There are Mm -hmm. periods when, for example, there are athletes that are highly popular. And uh, if there's any scandal or anything that comes up around them in terms relating to drugs, it will uh, – I think spike in the media and there will be that focus on drugs in sport. And then I think it goes through a lull and it comes back again. Uh, so it's interesting the journey that that maybe public consciousness takes mm. in terms of understanding the the struggle because it, it, it's constant. I think uh, as I think we all suspect the the, uh, the drug cheats constantly try and stay one step ahead of the testing. And so it, it's, it's not something that's ever won. It's just something that continues to be battled.
0: Uh, Dr Diana Robinson, can I bring you in here? Just in terms of perspective, if we're talking about how long this has been going on, do you mind just giving us a bit of perspective overall?
4: Well, there's certainly reports uh, um, that have been found of uh, athletes taking drugs right back uh, to 2000 BC when the first Games... (laughs) So a while. (laughs) Uh, But the first uh, modern reports were in the 1920s at the Tour de France with athletes taking uh, amphetamines. And in fact, there was uh, reports of two or three athletes dying because in those days they didn't understand the importance of hydration. So uh, dehydration with the amphetamines resulted in uh, death. Um, And subsequently there was reports um, intermittently until the uh, 80s when uh, um, it became much more obvious that uh, there was... uh, Rampant doping, particularly in Eastern Bloc and in the sprinters, with uh, the days of Ben Johnson and co.
0: Right, right. Uh, Dr. Thomas Murray, can I bring you in Uh, in terms of struggling with this? In terms of ethics, uh, can you give us a bit of an idea of how easy it or difficult it's
5: been to grapple with this? It's not been easy to get people to take seriously the the essential sort of moral nature and moral problem with doping, but there really are two problems um one is that uh if you permit uh any athlete to dope or if you, you whether you do it officially or whether you just don't seriously enforce an anti-doping policy uh doping will become widespread in any sport in which it is effective and ultimately makes a difference so uh the athlete who wishes to compete clean is at a horrible disadvantage when uh, there are effective doping substances and we don't do an effective job of cracking down on them. Mm. Melanie Wright, can I bring you back
0: in, Uh, formerly Melanie Schlanger? You're now studying to become a doctor at Bond University. Can I ask you, is there a connection between your swimming and your medical career? I mean, are you interested in working in sports medicine, maybe, and looking at this issue as a doctor?
6: Yeah, I
2: definitely have been um, sort of passionate my whole life about sport and medicine. I actually wanted to be a doctor uh, long before I ever wanted to be a swimmer, so... Um, it is definitely a passion and, and to be able to combine those two in the future um, is sort of my ultimate goal. So, yeah, I do see myself in the sport medicine field one day and um, certainly being quite um, adamant against drugs in sport. I hope to, to sort of influence that in some way in the future as well. But, you know, I think at this stage it it, it is a bit disheartening, the whole scenario and the landscape of, of doping. And um, just from the point of view that... Um, you know we are always behind and and the the drug uh testing is always um i guess that one step behind and i think in in the future um that's going to be you know the the biggest way to combat but you know how do you replace those those medals and those moments that that athletes lose when you're awarding retrospective medals so mm. Yeah, it is a bit
0: disheartening in that regard. Well, Melanie, I do understand you've got guests in the house and you've got uh, lots to do this weekend, so I understand if you have to go, you're very welcome to stay if you want to, but we're very grateful for you being part of the program and giving some uh, personal um, observations on this from one who's competed at the very highest levels. But thank God we've got Sally here as well. (laughs) We're not short of sporting stars tonight. Thank you very much. Sally, could I throw to you, um, what is drug testing actually trying to achieve? Is it just about a level playing field? Is that what it is?
3: Uh, <clears throat> I think it's a level playing field. I think it's there's also a, a general health component and welfare because um, athletes in certain situations, I think, uh, maybe are not in control as much as they should be or as educated as they should be. Uh, in And uh, I think the long-term impacts on their health and their, their bodies from... Various types of drugs that, that can be taken or have been taken um, throughout um, throughout the years have serious long term effects on people's health, mm. uh, and so I think on, on one side of it, yes, there's the even playing fo- field, the ethical side of it being a fair, and and, and it's really the, the 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 best will succeed in terms of the best at the sport, not the best with the best means and everything else mm. that goes with it. But also it, I think it's that holistic approach to sport, that sport isn't, you're not throwing people into a gladiator's ring, that mm. you are, their, their health and wellbeing should still come first and foremost before before any gold medal or any top performance. And so these are uh, the, the rules allow for guidelines to main, main, make sure that athletes' health is um, uh, is the first priority. Uh,
0: Dr Diana Robinson, you mentioned deaths from use of amphetamine, which I, I think back then wasn't even illegal, by the way. But we've also seen you know, fairly strong footage in documentary of what happened to Eastern Bloc competitors who were filled on compulsory uh, you know, doping things and what it mm. did to them physically, how much damage. So it, it is it, effectively, it can be extremely damaging, can't it?
4: Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt that... Uh, um, long-term use of uh, anabolic steroids can have uh, very severe effects on the liver, the kidney, the heart, um, can result in cancer and uh, infertility. Um, the other thing that you have to think about too with regard to um, why performance-enhancing substances are banned is that it's not only effects of the athlete taking them, but if you've got a motorcar car rice driver... Mm-hmm. racing driver or a bike rider who's on some form of stimulant or other medication, that um, they could be a danger to the other people as well. So, the, you know, and that's often a... Um, it's not always considered, but um, we, have to, we have to take it into consideration.
0: Dr Thomas Murray, can I bring you back? If we were talking about the positive values that should guide how sport is played or how, how those, those values should be displayed in sport, how would you argue
5: well uh the health argument is an important argument i mean the um there everything that's been said so far has been sensible and I think on point uh but it goes beyond that The ethics of drugs and sport go well beyond that uh, The effort to create a level playing field um could be achieved as some have argued, not me, uh by making sure every athlete has access to the same drugs and some Philosophers have gone further and said, well, as long as they had access to drugs that we knew were, quote, safe, unquote, um, that would be fine. Right. Uh, I, think that, I think that is. Uh, I think people and who make that for argument, everybody. <laughs> you bet. Uh, I think that would be f- uh, catastrophic health wise, not just for the athletes in question, mm. but for, say, all the young people who admire the athletes and we want to emulate them. But even if the health argument could be neutralized, There's something about the values that people find in sport and the meaning they find in their particular sport that I think would be undermined and even destroyed if we allowed uh, rampant use of performance-enhancing drugs. What I've argued in a number of articles I've written and in a book manuscript that I'm now working on is that what we really value in sport is what we look for is the virtuous perfection of a person's natural Talents. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: So that's that's an that's an ethical argument you're making about from virtue ethics. In fact, I think you're, you're you that's coming straight out of uh, ethical argument directly, not just well, on health it, cards. It's,
5: it's really coming out of the time I've spent talking to athletes and coaches and people involved in elite sport uh, and asking them what matters to them, and then you know looking at my own experience and you know. Uh, other people's experiences, and that really seems to be at the heart of what we're looking for. And so, you know, the reason we uh, so we have a, uh, a world champion, a uh, competitive swimmer on the panel, right? We do, and and so you would know that a whole, I think, more than a hundred swimsuits were banned. Uh, Melanie uh, might have had to have gone,
0: yet I'm not quite sure. Are you still there, Melanie, <laughs> or if you had to go? No, I think she's gone. Sorry.
5: Well, we know that these swimsuits were banned. The FINA, the governing body for swimming, just ruled them out. And it wasn't because they were – they weren't drugs, obviously, They were, but they were a technology that changed the meaning of the sport of swimming. They mm-hmm. were uh, – they uh, slipped through the water. They were impermeable. And what would happen is an athlete – a swimmer would put on one of these full-body suits – Trap air underneath and become buoyant. Right. Uh, I heard of one swimmer who actually wore three suits, one over another, in order to get you know a triple advantage. Mm. Yeah, and you know that that could be a different sport. But the point is that people who know and love swimming felt that that was a distortion of the underlying values of the sport of swimming, and they banned it. And so I think for similar reasons, we ought to ban performance enhancing drugs.
0: Zari Steggle, you've been nodding
5: uh, quite Uh, happily.
3: It's quite interesting because that. there is the so there's the drug component, but there's also the technical component. Every sport has a lot of rules um, by which the sport and your participation in that sport is regulated. So if I look at my sport, skiing, for example, different disciplines, the skis had to meet certain criteria. Mm-hmm. Your binding could only be a certain height off the snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, your ski boot could only have certain angles. Within mm-hmm. certain angles, you were permitted. And for example, you, I mean, it's very real in the sense that you cross the finish line, and if you're in the on the podium or uh, one. of the random people to be tested, you literally take your ski boots off and they measure the angle, they measure the heights and the millimetres. Your race suit had to let through a certain amount of air and it had to be plumbed to show that it had been tested. So um, something like the swimming suit is something, I mean, that was quite familiar for me because we, we had that with skiing. And that It's an interesting one because people – well, not people – athletes and sports and teams do try and take the technology to that limit, the permissible limit, in terms of getting as much advantage as possible in terms of your ski with the biggest angle or whatever whatever the gradient – Within the uh, what's allowed, and then every mm. now and then you get some people one who will have used a pair of skis that has the diff, the wrong angle, and you and you are literally disqualified.
0: And that's a technical advantage that's, that they shouldn't have had, is what you're saying. Well, they were according ultimately to the rules.
3: trying to push the boundary, right? And some get caught, some don't. So. Really, ethically, the drugs is the same thing in the sense that you're trying to push that boundary of getting an advantage over someone else by any means, whether it's technical or, or I guess, chemical in terms of your physical ability. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting one how a lot of people, I think, when they look at a number of sports can justify looking for the technical advantage. Yeah. But I think there is an additional ethical dilemma that comes onto the drug side of it. Mm. But maybe if it was viewed in the same way as the technical mm-hmm. criteria, it would take the emotion out of it and maybe mm. look at it in a more – it would become a more um, – Me-
0: Measurable rather than emotional reaction, if you know what I mean. E- exactly. And, why. E- mm.
3: and instead of um, sort of it become a – uh, and I think maybe the public would understand it better. I think the public understands very well rules or guidelines or technical criteria, but maybe the drugs not quite so well. And and I think if you if that can all be combined, uh, you probably get better understanding from the public's point of view.
5: May I ask a question, Azali? Uh, jump in, please. Azali, So when I started talking to athletes, and we're we're talking thirty five years ago, um, about why anybody took performance enhancing drugs, and in, in that era, it was fundamentally the uh, amphetamines and anabolic steroids. Those are the two categories of drugs of choice. Uh, The athletes and their coaches would say to me, well, you know, the reason I feel like I'm tempted to take them, and maybe they did take them, was because I know that other people are taking them, Mm. and they'll Mm. beat me, even if they're less talented or don't don't work as hard as I do. And I don't want to give up that edge. Is that the kind of response you think that would still find resonance in your contemporary uh, athletes? I,
3: I would hope not. But it's always really hard to understand what is it that makes someone tick, tip over the edge to cheating. I mean, it's, I'm always really curious to know if you could sit in their mind at that point in time, because there has to be a conscious decision. Now, nothing happens by accident, and at every at some point in their life, they've made a conscious decision. They've they've uh, they've permitted themselves to cheat. Basically, they've they've said okay in their mind. And I'm always quite curious as to how does anyone get to that point where, from being the kid. With the dream to perform and the dream to succeed and the dream of gold medals and all that. And I think from my personal experience, it came from I was very uh, competitive, I liked winning, but it was always about uh, believing what the best I could do and and giving it my best shot. Mm. So I'm always curious to know, what is it that was that tipping point for someone? Was it giving up on themselves, losing faith in their own ability, or is it the losing, losing faith in the field they're playing in? I, I'm, I'd be curious to know the answers you, you get. Well,
0: we, there is something I... We, we actually have a... P, you remember Lance Armstrong? Do you remember that name? <laughs> yes. Uh, international cycling superhero until he was exposed as a drug cheat in 2012. In, in a Guardian article, he, he described his, his, his... Well, a Guardian article described his journey as a journey from deity to disgrace, like <laughs> from top to bottom... And, you know, he'd won seven consecutive Tours de France, and, you know, the last one in 2005, and he got a bronze medal for cycling at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Now, here's him being interviewed. This is what he, was, this is what he said when, when he'd been caught.
1: When it comes to the doping, would you do it again? You know, if I was racing in 2015, no, I wouldn't do it again. Because I don't think you have to do it again. If you take me back to 1995 when it was completely and totally pervasive, they'd probably do it again. People don't like to hear that.
7: But that's the honest answer.
1: Yeah, that's the honest answer. But but it but it it's it's an answer that needs some explanation. And, and and it's I mean I look at everything, you know, when I made that decision, when my teammates made that decision, when the whole Peloton made that decision. Like let's we we get it. It was it was, an, it was a, a bad decision in an imperfect time, but it happened. When Lance Armstrong did that, I know what happened because of that. I know that um, I know what happened to the sport of cycling from 1999 to 2005. Um, I, I saw its growth. I saw its expansion. I know what happened with the industry, the cycling industry. I know what happened to my foundation from raising no money to raising $500 million serving three million people. Um, Do all those people want to, do we want to go make a different decision, do we want to take it away? I don't think anybody says yes.
0: That's from the BBC, but you heard a number of ethical, look, we've done a lot of good, my foundation's done a lot of good, everybody was doing it, Uh, Dr. Diana Robinson, you were shaking your head though, sadly, (laughs) as you listened to that, would you like to comment?
4: (laughs) Oh, well, um, you know, I think all those uh, reasons are are, are well known and um, and well used by the athletes. I think one of the other things that um, I see a lot of, and particularly in the contact sports, is the use of these drugs to recover from injury and to be able to take a battering every week. Right. And, you know, some of these athletes, they're talented, but for whatever reason, their body type, they get injured regularly and um, it's a way of uh, recovering, building muscle bulk so that they can uh, tolerate the the contact week in, week out.
0: You're on ABC Radio Round Australia. At the moment, we're talking about sport, really. We're talking about drugs. We're talking about ethical behaviour in sport. We're talking about how this how to set this right, as it were, with an illustrious panel. Now, in studio with me, Zali Stegall, OAM, one of Australia's most successful international skiers. Dr Diana Robinson, who is, well, she was appointed by the Federal Minister for Health and Sport to the Anti-Doping Rules Violation Panel. She's worked with the Olympic Games. She's been medical director to Triathlon Australia. She's also been a member of the International Triathlon Union Doping Commission and the ITU Medical Commission. And in our Brisbane studio, Dr. Thomas Murray, who's President Emeritus of the Hastings Centre, the Ethics Centre in New York State. one 300 if you want to call in. Uh, Zali, can I go back to you? You heard uh, that justification. There were so many good things that I got out of it. Everybody else was doing it.
3: But at no point did he actually take responsibility. Mm. That at the end of the day, the choice was his. Like, we are all... Uh I think we're all masters of our destiny (laughs) and we do all have choices to make, whether it's in life, whether it's in sport. Um, I think everyone's going to be faced with that. I mean, I'm a mum. I've got my kids and the number one thing that I try and teach them is to take responsibility. Uh, I always feel that there's no... um, uh, well, they, they have to take. Yeah, you have to take this responsibility for your actions. And I must say, of all the interviews I've ever heard of Lance Armstrong, I've never ever heard him take responsibility. Because mm. I don't think, at the heart of it, he actually does. Because at the end of the day, he he had built up such a level of justification for what he was doing or why he was doing it that he. I don't think he's ever quite stripped back to the mm. actual point of of choosing that path because ultimately winning at any cost was more important than winning clean. Dr. Uh,
0: Dr. Thomas Murray, uh, winning at any cost, there's, there are the words. How do you uh, encourage a sporting culture where that is not the only aim, as it were, winning at any cost?
5: An excellent question. First of all, let me agree with uh, my fellow panellists that uh, when an athlete makes a decision to dope, that person is morally responsible for that choice. But I also I learned very early on to step back from that uh, uh, without ever denying that the moral responsibility of the individual athlete and also say, look, there is a culture, an ecosystem, uh, and an entourage often that's involved in athletes' decisions to dope. If you read uh, Tyler Hamilton's uh, book his memoir of his years as a professional cyclist mm. uh... Mm. racing with people like armstrong and he describes how it was that uh... D- beginning to dope as a member you know when he went to europe and started racing in the peloton uh... beginning to dope was actually sort of seen by him and his fellow cyclists as acceptance as an elite athlete in his sport and there were doctors and scientists and coaches and trainers all of whom uh, supported this culture of doping. So mm. I suggested 30, more than 30 years ago that we all ought not just to sanction athletes, but in particular we also ought to go after these ecosystems that sort of facilitate doping. And,
0: and create a culture and, where it's encouraged or allowed or implicitly promoted, as it were.
5: Yes, they did that, and they got away scot-free for decades. We're finally beginning to focus in on them as well. And we're beginning to sanction the people who are creating and sustaining the doping culture. Uh,
0: there are—I I don't want to make this into a depressing hour, of course, because we're talking about you know <laughs>
5: excellence,
0: and we really are. And we're talking about you know the edge of things that go wrong. And you know, I'm—I'm I'm reminded of you know people like you know Adam Gilchrist. You know, the, the semi-final clash of the 2003 World Cup between Australia and Sri Lanka is not necessarily remembered for the cricket so much as it's remembered for a show of sportsmanship. He was on 22 runs when he walked, you know. He just—he wasn't called, but he, he said, well, actually, I'm out, and off he went. People actually argued over that at the time, but he was doing the sporting thing. Or you may have seen on, um, or on social media the, uh, the Brownlee brothers. Do, do you see that? It was the, um, the World Triathlon Series where one brother was completely exhausted at the end and could, he was just short of the line, His brother stopped, grabbed him, and ran him across the line so that his brother came second in the race. But it it meant that one brother lost the race, which somebody else won, overtook them, but his brother he pushed across the line. You see that sort of generosity all the time. So I don't want to be too depressing about it, but I, I think we do need to talk about where, you know, how do you actually change or encourage this culture to be one where it is also about health, but also about ethical excellence as as, as well. Zali, how would you go about it? Is it just talking? Is it encouraging? What is it?
3: No, I'm very much for, uh, I think, that strict (laughs) responsibility shouldn't just apply to the athletes. It really needs to apply Hmm. to the administrative bodies, the sports, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and from the very top. Uh, From the very top down, it needs to be held accountable because... um, there's always quite an interesting discussion between team sports and individuals in terms of that taking mm-hmm. responsibility in athletes and that um, the being part of the culture uh, for, for for athletes when they're in a team and whether that sort of leads them down that path because acceptance is to participate in the process mm. uh, and I think um, so. so the, your level of responsibility is on that individual person getting caught up, but it's also on the team structure. Is it the coach putting something in place? Is it the team management enabling it to be put in place by paying for Such it? Such as, as sudden, the Essendon
0: just, situation, as it were. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
3: Not talking specific examples, but I think it's, it's really important that the sporting bodies, you know, the head of a sporting organisation should never be seen to be remotely looking for excuses or endorsing behaviour that is right. not... Uh, that has been caught out. Uh, and and because if the example doesn't come from the top, where is it going to come from? I mean, if the athletes can't see that the message of absolute zero tolerance and it's not a winning at all cost attitude, it's a winning clean that's important, that, that is what matters to the very top of the sport, uh, how can the message get through?
0: Well, call me a punter. This is, this is going to be a personal question, but look, I sort of see you as the top. I mean... When you hear Olympian, you think, well, that's the best in the world, you know. That's who it is. Are you saying that you felt in the chain of preparation that it wasn't only about your decisions, that you were following direction? Is that, is that what you're saying?
3: Uh, yeah. Even me as an individual sports person, we're in a sport where, for example, uh, to give you an example with skiing, we're very much prey to the weather.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So uh, a race is scheduled on the day, but the weather might be appalling and conditions extremely unfair. From the uh, the governing body's point of view, there's TV rights and everything's lined up for that race to go well, ahead well, on that well, day. Well, yes. Their concern was not so much that the race be a fair race, just that the race go ahead because the sponsors and the TV and everything is wow. lined up. So you, as an individual athlete, can feel very much the pawn of the bigger How picture. How complicated, wow. And athlete, there are very few sports where athletes actually combine to be an athlete's union, for example, to... Um, mm uphold their rights as athletes uh, and to have, I guess, some kind of bargaining power with the organising bodies when it comes to big events to be able to maintain that standard and make sure that it is uh, an even playing field. So, uh, look, the, <laughs> there's, there can be issues all along. I mean, the, the, that idea, especially individual athletes that are against one another, so you're trying yeah. to win. So how do you get Competing. unity against... Mm. competitors, or amongst competitors, uh, very difficult.
0: We have to take a call. We've got one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number if you do want to call in, but I, I realise we're, we, this is an interesting conversation. We need to take some of those calls and find out what people want to say. Hello, Anthony, have I got you in Cairns?
7: Yes, you certainly do.
0: Excellent. What, what would you like to say or ask?
7: I'm just curious. Um, the, I believe the doc lady mentioned about... Um,
0: Dr. Diana Robinson, yeah, the doc uh, lady. <laughs>
7: motorsports and and amphetamines.
0: And uh, that was that was racing. Up, that was uh, bicycle racing, wasn't it?
7: Yes, yes, it was. But, mm-hmm. uh, i uh, Just curious because I'm I'm not so much an athletic sports fan, but a motorsports fan. And when you have GP motorcyclists racing with broken hands and broken feet and toes and whatever, and 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 GP car drivers after having smashes in practice and all the rest of it. I was wondering if there's drug testing, especially rally drivers who slam in the odd tree. I was just curious if there was uh, drug testing in, in, in motorsports.
0: Do you know about that? Um,
4: I know that the drivers are subject to doping testing, yes. Um, they, have, um, they are subject to certain controls, um, and um, in particular alcohol and um, uh, other calming drugs that will calm their nerves. Um, but they they are subject to the wider code in most of the um, um, racing sports. Whether they get tested and how often they get tested is actually up to the, uh, the um, national federations.
7: Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but would that be before and after every race or it's just like luck? Like?
4: It uh, depends on what the National Federation decides, how much money they're willing to pay for their doping um, program. Mm. But I couldn't actually tell you at a... Um, so you've a, heard any
7: rumours or... No. <laughs> We're
0: not I confer- don't trade
4: in rumours.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your call, Anthony. Uh, uh, thank
6: you very much for listening.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Let's go to Peter in Shepparton. Peter, have I got you?
6: Yes, you have. <laughs> uh, is it Rob, is it?
0: This is Noel, and it, uh, no, it's Noel. Dr Diana Robinson, Azali Stegall and Dr Thomas Murray are on the panel.
6: Good on you. Great panel there, I'm sure.
0: Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Yeah. What did you want to ask, or what did you want to comment on?
6: Well, since simply that I'm in the harness racing game. okay I've been all my life, uh, born and bred into it, and grown up with, you know, most of the stars in the game. But if occasionally someone dopes a horse, I think, you know, they're really robbing us. They're really robbing their peers, because... Oops, I've got that phone on them. Yes, yep. They're really rubbing their peers. I mean, we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you hear the defence that, oh, the owners are putting pressure on me and I have to, I have to win a couple of races here and there to right. To, um, you know, to keep the owners happy. But we all have that pressure.
0: Uh, that, sounds like, that sounds like that goes across the board.
6: Yeah. You like to be judged on your skill, not on your chemistry. I'm mm, uh, ob- argue that um, in, in my game that perhaps they should get 10 years uh, I've heard others so they should get life mm. I'm inclined to say life because once you dope a horse or if you're an athlete or vice versa, if you dope yourself and then win a race it really shelves the ethics of your sport
0: Mm. I think we, we thank you very much for the call. I think I think that's that's actually ringing bells with what we've been talking about in, in other sports too. Um, th- we've had also a a, a a note here from Greg in Perth saying, "What do you think of the ethics of using o- oxygen chambers?" Now, at what point? Uh, I'm going to ask you this in a minute too, uh, Doctor Thomas Murray, but Doctor Diana, can I start with you? Where's the line between things that keep you healthy? and enhance your performance and doping? Is there a clear line?
4: Well, if you look at the WADA code and what um, they describe as doping, you have to satisfy two of their three criteria. Mm -hmm. And the first criteria is that either it's a method or it's a substance that can potentially or does enhance your performance. Mm-hmm. The second one is that it's a, it's a um, substance or method that could potentially or does harm you. And the third, that it falls outside the spirit of the sport, which right. is a bit of... The spirit a, of the sport, that's a bit of a slippery of the sport. one. It is, and it's certainly what Tom's been talking about in terms of um, those, those things that characterise sport, the health, the team play, the respect for rules, mm-hmm. um, the community... Um, those types of things within the sport. Um, But, yeah, so what they talk about is doping as being two of those three things. So it doesn't necessarily have to be harmful, but if it's outside the spirit of the sport, which maybe the um, technical issues fall into that as well.
0: Well, With things like high-altitude training, Zali, for example, you know, that's meant to enhance the way the body... Uh, processes oxygen, isn't it? That's but it
3: but I mean, see, ironically, I always think back to think back to the days of the Olympics being the amateur game, the yeah. amateur games, and uh. it was you were not allowed to compete if you actually had a professional coach. You you weren't allowed to be a professional athlete. You could only go as an amateur, um, and it was considered to be outside of the spirit of the games to to be coached. It's just to, chariots to of train, fire. Yeah, yes. <laughs> my favourite movie as a kid. <laughs> that whole concept that you shouldn't be training that it should be just natural talent that mm. just comes together
4: on the day by some <laughs> miracle. <laughs> yes. Can well, I just cut in and yeah, just sure. say that um, at this point there's actually still no consensus about whether altitude training does work. Right. And if it does work, um, how much or how high or for when and whether you train high and sleep low or um, and, um just done a little bit of research in that area for one reason or another and, uh, yeah, the, the jury still remains out.
0: It could be the sporting equivalent of kale is what you're saying. Dr Thomas Murray, can I ask you? I look at things like, you know, you see a runner who comes from an African country with very minimal infrastructure uh, or you'll see people who are competing from nations which don't have the same level of health care uh, as, say, America or Australia. And that already is an inequity in it itself, isn't it? It, yes. it, it, in one sense. So where's the line between what is an unfair advantage for a sports person who's competing at something like the Olympics and what is a fair advantage in your view?
5: Oh, well, you've asked one of the hardest questions available. Um, oh, that's good. I think that's if, a gold star yeah, for me. It is. If, 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 now, there, there are undoubtedly, there are people in the world who are probably more talented, based, have the fundamental natural talents, more so than anybody who won an Olympic gold medal. But they, for one reason or another, weren't interested in sport or didn't get the opportunity to play Mm. sport. Mm. So we can regret that, and I think the response to that is not to give up on the Olympic Games, but to try to encourage as much access to the ability to play sport. And if you do have talents, to have those talents developed as is possible around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, as it stands now, if I'm a really talented uh, distance runner in Kenya, I'm probably going to get recognized and get coaching and support in order to develop that talent. Mm-hmm. So it's not—it's a very imperfect system, but I think the uh, the appropriate remedy is to. Uh, is to enable more and more people to play sport and to have their talents, give them an opportunity to have their talents recognised and to develop those talents.
0: Zali Stegler, you were nodding again there when I, when I was talking about what, how does equity work when you look across all the nations that compete. Uh,
3: well, y- yes. Uh, I mean, there's definitely d- different sports, different nations, different advantages. Um, at the end of the day, I think the, the discussion or the argument can get a little bit too... Uh, pious, maybe <laughs> <No, laughs> in the sense that it is still sport. It is still somebody has to win. It is still about winning. Um, it is still about um, physical excellence, and then what? Uh, what is done to reach that physical excellence in terms of the technical aspect of your sport and the whether it's endurance for a long distance event or explosive power for a shorter event Um, and and that's where for example you know the oxygen chamber or the training it is about doing everything you can to uh, get the best uh, performance out of yourself I think as an athlete I train thousands of, you know, the 10,000 hour rule Mm -hmm. is true. You spend hours training, perfecting what you do. Um, There's nothing uh, wrong with that. That is how you achieve excellence is by repeating it and training it and and honing in on the edge or whatever advantage you have available to you. The, The real, I think, dividing line is where you take that advantage and try and do it outside the rules. It, it is about respecting the boundaries, yeah, we're respecting, respecting on, the We're rules. focusing on
0: doping, of course. Uh, Dr Diana Robinson, can I ask you, is it possible to screen for all drugs? Or can is no. everybody just keeping ahead of it, you know what I mean?
4: No, it's not possible to screen for all drugs. Um, and uh, um, in fact, when once upon a time we were aware of how they screen for everything, now They actually do keep um, certain strategies quiet Mm -hmm. um, so that the athletes don't necessarily know um, what they can and can't screen for. Most things they can pick up, but um, when you take small doses of uh, EPO or growth hormone, it's actually very difficult to pick it up.
0: I think I've learned a new term. It's called a whereabouts infraction. Is correct. that right? That mm-hmm. means the the athlete doesn't turn up for the designated test no. at the right time, is that right? Mm,
4: um no. Mm. They the um doping control can come to you yep. and every athlete is required and Zali, correct me if I'm wrong, but every athlete is required to uh, um complete online a um where they will be for one hour every day for a right. the next three months ahead. Oh and um and so if they um are selected for a drug test. The uh, um, doping control Confirmed have them. to go to that spot. Wow, and, that's pretty um, strict. Yeah, so if you don't um, aren't there when they come, it's you, it's an infraction, and it's three strikes, and it's if you if you miss out three times, then that's considered a rule violation. Well,
0: well let me ask you. Sorry, go, ahead, Dr. Thomas. There,
5: well, there have been some. This is the whereabouts rule. Mm. There yes. have been some studies of. Uh, of elite athletes and their feelings about the whereabouts rule, and they generally find it uh, you know, quite restricting. But on the other hand, uh, overwhelmingly, the, uh, the results so far say that they favor it uh, mm-hmm. because it just gives them a fairer chance of having a chance to win, again, based on their talents yes. and their dedication. May I make one other point about sure. changes in the way we, we now test for uh, doping? Uh, the athlete biological passport. Uh, has come into practice within the past 10 years, I think. Is that right? Yes. My colleagues. Uh, The people in cycling in the Peloton say that 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 transformed cycling. The athlete biological passport doesn't look for the presence of a drug in your body. It looks for unusual patterns in your physiology that could be attributable to taking a performance-enhancing drug. Mm. And that, that... I don't know if it's still as effective as it was before, and I'm sure there are strategies that have been developed to try to evade even being detected by the passport. But that's been, I think, a major step forward in in doping control.
0: Uh, Dr. Diana Robinson, this is sort of interesting. I think from what I've been reading and preparing for this, Australia is actually pretty good, actually, compared internationally to other nations on how much testing it does. Yes,
4: very much so.
0: How thorough its testing is, what it tests for. But how does it measure up against every other country in the world? Is there a, is there an extra burden on our uh, sports infrastructure to keep this up, which is not being matched elsewhere? Is what I'm asking. I
4: think it's very hard to compare to other countries. <laughs> um, I'm I don't sit on any international bodies at right. the moment, so and Tom may have um, more understanding. But um, I think we do stack up very well. We have very um, rigid rules. We've got very good legislation, and um, it's well policed, I suppose. Um, anecdotally, there's certainly other countries that don't do what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I read in the media that um, Jamaica before the last um, um, Olympics did one out of co- out of competition test in the six months up to the London Olympics. Um, so you know, there are countries that just don't comply with uh, um, the. the well, it's
0: expensive, though, too, isn't it? It's so very expensive do, you know, yes. to do all this. Mm. There's actually yes. a lot
5: of money involved in doing it. Yeah. Yes. And, Although and spirit, it's, a very t- it's a very tiny percentage of the money that sport takes in. Right. Say. Mm-hmm. But put it into perspective. It, sport is a huge international industry. It's a reasonable expenditure, you're saying, Thomas Murray. Uh, well, that's everybody's judgment, right? Mm. But uh, certainly in light of the, the tiny the tiny fraction of a percent it actually takes up of the annual income in uh, elite and professional sport, it seems to me eminently reasonable. And I... Uh, I do think that Australia is regarded as a very good actor in the international scene in and, and its anti-doping
0: efforts. Thomas Murray, how, if you had to just do a, you know, a, a finger-painting version of how, you know, how extensive is the doping problem, what, what would you say to that? Is it tiny? Is it, is it mm, a lot boy. of people? You know, what, what's your guesstimate of it?
5: In different eras, in particular sports, it has been endemic. You mentioned Armstrong and cycling. It's been yeah. true in the past in weightlifting and wrestling and some other sports. Uh, any endurance sport is uh, susceptible to you know, being infected by rampant use of uh, erythra EPO, which creates more red blood cells in mm. a couple of weeks. So it's it's difficult to say. I think some sports can – cultures in sports can change. Mm -hmm. My sense is, and I pray I'm not being hopelessly naive about this, is that professional cycling has, in fact, changed. Not that it's entirely clean, but it went from being a sport that was rampant with doping to being a sport where there really seems to be uh, uh, a mindset against it and where young, talented cyclists feel they have a chance to be successful without having to get on the doping train. I'd love to hear what... uh, uh, Zali and Diana. Yes, how me think too. Think Z- Zali, how, hope, how, how hopeful are you? Confident that this
0: this is being won? Uh,
3: look, yes, I think technology is evolving and I think uh, the tests are uh, kept samples are kept for a long time so as uh, technology evolves and uh, the testing uh, becomes more uh, specific or new oppo- new ways of testing mm. get, get developed uh, they uh, you can go but they can go back and retest samples from 10 years ago 15 years ago and and you can go back and have a better understanding of what might have been happening in the past um, and I think from an athletes point of view that should be there should be a certain level of deterrence from that, knowing that. that
0: Enforcement has to be part that, of it is what you're saying.
3: Uh, yes. Uh, but, but also, that, I mean, what's your legacy? What's the point? If your legacy is ultimately going to be entirely undone, maybe five years, you may not be caught now, but you might be caught in five years or ten years' time, mm. then that that everything put into those performances will have been for nothing because your legacy is destroyed. The minute that test is, it, it, the minute you, you, you're found to be a drug cheat, it's over in terms of whatever your legacy, sporting, whether there were clean events or not, Mm. everything is tarnished. So I do have hope that I think that the ethical side wins in the sense that we've turned the page from greed above all and it's all about the money and the winning and so winning at all costs to a level of coming back to sport, being a little bit more... Um well the ethical side a little bit like how i think in in life um there is a push towards eating organic and eating healthy yeah, and be, being yeah. a bit more mindful of less our work life yes yeah. uh, that's not all about the 80s and the greed um, <laughs> that I th- hope I do have hope that sport can turn can go through that journey as well in terms of the celebrating the the performance and the sportsmanships and the exceptional stories mm. and the exceptional story is not always a gold medal
0: Yes. Well, we've only got a minute to go, <laughs> and to draw all this together is, is a little difficult. But could I ask, this is a sort of a naive question, that's about enforcement, it's about rules, it's about observing rules. But what about, can I go to you, Zali, again, though? What inside you makes you want this to be ethical, to be fair? Where does that come from? Is that out from Zali as a girl growing up in her school and family where is it? Is it coming out of the sport and how the sport is governed? Where does it come from?
3: Uh, no, I, I think it comes, I think, from my entire journey because I've now level, I'm have now i involved at the administrative level for mm. a number of organisations. Uh, I'm also a director of Sayhoff, which is the Sports Hall of Fame, where we look at people's sporting legacies. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, sport, it's a moment in time to win a medal or to, to succeed, but the, it only really takes importance if it's remembered, if it has a legacy that lives on. Um, and that is for nothing. (laughs) if if it's tarnished
0: I've got to say goodbye thanks to our panel uh, to Zali, to Diana uh, to Thomas Murray we've only been able to draw out some of these issues tonight this has been a podcast of Sunday nights on ABC local radio Thank thank you for listening